millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're... Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to another, yet another, uh, podcast with me, Gary Bain, and with my good chum, Peter Hart. Hello. Morning, Pete. How are you? I'm very well. I am very well. I'm just back from a lovely holiday in the sun without you. Seven days and seven nights. So during which period you managed to advertise completely the wrong podcast? I did. <laughs> I can't be left on my own for no. it. For, you know. Well, in that case, I better say what we're doing today. Then. I'll get it wrong. <laughs> so today, Pete, it's going to be uh, the continuation of the series on the second five and four file yeomanry. And today... It's uh, going to be Operation Blue Coat. Not Blue Nose. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. Now we left them. We left them with a, a bit of a, uh, a cliffhanger situation, wasn't it? It was right exciting because they'd been smashed up at, uh, at Operation Goodwood and, uh, and, uh, would they, would they, would they, would they be broken up and sent to other units? Who knows? Anyway, for what, what's happening for them? What, what are they doing? Do well, you... at this particular time, it's peace, Pete. Perfect peace. It might that, have seemed... like when you were on holiday. Yes. <laughs> it might... I was left alone. It was quiet. There's no. Oh, I thought you meant I had some peace. Oh. Now, it might have seemed, uh, in retrospect, but the second five and four file yeomanry sojourn, that's well, French, at uh, Ardennes Abbey was at the time a period of considerable tension within the regiment, as you've alluded to. I have. Well, they were worried. There's, they've got the, the. There's a lot of people been killed and wounded. They, they haven't got that many tanks left. Although, let's be fair, the British Army is really well organised. You get replacement tanks within a day or so, um, and they, they were worried about being broken up. But in the end. All is well, isn't it? Because somebody else is broken up, though. We should have done 24th Lancers. We could pronounce that. Yeah, and they were broken up. They were the ones that were chosen. The series had been coming to an end. <laughs> yes, they were, they were chosen to provide reinforcement for, for other units. Yeah. Now, now, new drafts also came in, and any remaining gaps in the ranks of the officers and NCOs were filled by promotions. That's Ooh. always a good thing. Uh, and uh, Roy Valence was raised to the dizzy heights, and they are dizzy. Don't let anybody tell you that. Well, you not. got so dizzy you I often off. got dizzy. <laughs> uh, the, the dizzy heights of Lance Corporal. And this is what Trooper Roy Valence of 4 Troop A Squadron says. 
We were pretty shattered to think of the casualties we'd had and the number of tanks we'd lost. It didn't bode well for the future. Everybody was pretty shattered. We thought we were going to have this marvellous victory with all these tanks. Invincible! And in fact, as far as we could see, we'd lost three quarters of our vehicles. By this time, we knew the Sherman was no good. Personally, I felt... We're never going to survive this, so we might as well make the most of it. I was young. I thought, if I get brewed up or whatever, at least I'll go down fighting. Uh, he was a good soldier, uh, was uh, Roy Valance. Um, now, gradually, the regiment settled down. It assimilated the new arrivals and the new command structure. They didn't have any time to waste. Within just 10 days, they were required to be ready for 10 action. 10 days, Gary, after being after the unit being smashed to bits. I, I think that's quite impressive. But there's been some changes, and this perhaps reflects some of what was happening. Uh, well, uh, the, 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 the basic change was that the, there's a change in the brigade structure within the 11th Armoured Division. And the 2nd 544 Yeomanry are temporarily assigned to 159 Brigade Group. Uh, where they support the operation of First Herefordshire Regiment, a fine body of men. Uh, and uh, let's let's have certain newly promoted, newly promoted. They're all getting promoted. Pinky, the only nickname I really like using, Pinky Hutchison. Uh, this is actually Major Douglas Hutchison of A Squadron, and he explains what's going on. And I think he explains it well. So I'm surprised that you're doing this one. It had become evident that far closer cooperation with tanks and infantry was necessary. That applied particularly in the type of close country, the Bocage, that we were going to be operating in, in the foreseeable, foreseeable future. It was ideal defensive country, small fields with great big hedges, road banks, dry ditches, if not wet ditches. It was really quite difficult country for tanks to operate in from every point of view. You never had any sort of field of view of more than a few yards. So you can imagine that it wasn't easy. Infantry could be of great help, and were. Effectively, the units of the division were divided up into two identical mixed brigade groups, each with two armoured regiments, two infantry battalions, a gunner regiment, and anti-tank guns too. You'd have these two groups operating on parallel routes of advance. Now, this is important because it had long been recognised ever since the Great War that tanks were vital to help out the infantry. But what's what's been acknowledged now? What what are they starting to realise? Well, they're acknowledging that the infantry was equally essential to the tanks. This is the all-arms battle again. And, of course, they're not mentioning the guns so much, but you notice the guns are in that brigade group as well. the, 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 it's a much more flexible arrangement, isn't it? Uh, and and it, it's, a, it's better suited to the sort of challenges they're going to get in the Normandy campaign. Um, so who, let's go through it again. Who are the 159th Brigade Group? Who are they? Well, they consist of the 2nd 5 and 4 Fire Yeomanry. 54 Fars. Northamptonshire Yeomanry. Naughty Yeomars. No. <laughs> the 1st Herefordshire Regiment and the 4th King's Own Shropshire Light Infantry, that's the KSLI. Now, um, I, I think this is showing that already, I mean, we're only a couple of weeks later, in a sense, that, that some of the lessons of Epson and Goodwood are starting to be digested and, and, put in, and, and, and just things being put right. Uh, now, so what happens? Uh, 28th of July, the 11th Armoured Division moved from Arden Abbey, uh, and that's in the east sector of the, the, the British uh, bridgehead, right across to Colmont, Cattle Calmont, 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 in, in the west. Um, this is to the western flank of the British Second Army, and they're getting ready for Operation Blue Coat. 
as you said. Um, so, so tell me, what's the overall picture? Because the, 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 something big is happening. What is it? Well, since the 25th of July, the American First Army had been engaged in a major thrust on their front under Operation Cobra. Isn't that in a deep voice? Operation Cobra. Supported by massive bomber raids, they'd smashed their way through the relatively weak German 7th Army forward defence lines. Now, this is a, an American triumph, isn't it? I, I mean, the Americans, the British will, would not accept how, how, how fast they were improving, but they are improving. Uh, they're, they're, they're getting, just like the British had to improve from 19 bloody 39 as they went through the war. Um, but it's also a justification for, for, for the British sacrifices at Epsom and, and Goodwood. Because uh, although I, we both think that those battles were not well run or, 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 or they're certainly not victories, they had attracted most of the German armoured reserves away from the American front and concentrated on the, against the British, which is... A, a which problem. wasn't stated as one of the objectives. It was, but I think Montgomery then made it the only objective, whereas that's not quite what was happening. Um, uh, so what is the British role during Operation Goodwood? Uh, the British role was to continue to main pressure all along their front but the 30 Corps and the 8th Corps were to strike hard in support of the Americans on the immediate left flank of the American First so the, Army. they're going to push forward with them. Yeah, yeah. So what operation is this, Pete? Blue, uh, this is still Blue Coat. Not Goodwood, then? No. I'm just correcting you. you. You like correcting me. I was going to let it go, but decided not to. That's all right. The 11th Armoured Division, they'd be on the right flank, pushing forward towards Saint-Martin-le-Bazac, covering the advance of the 15th Scottish Division to their left. Ooh. Now, uh, so they're now, where the, the second 54 fires are right in the heart of the Bocage. And it is, as, as has been described, it's a complex landscape. Small fields, thick hedges, little woods, hills and valleys. And, and the roads, uh, the, the roads are surrounded by high banks, big thick hedges, deep ditches. It's bloody awful. Little villages. And, and we know what villages are. They're, uh, they're always focuses of defense. They're, they're difficult to take. And, uh, there are not many big towns the, the overall thing is very restricted lines of sight and 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 what does that mean what what if you can't see far what does that give the opportunity well it's for? a great it's ideal ground for a close range ambush now unfortunately there's a new weapon out as well which is ideal for a close range ambush are you referring to the panzerfaust Ooh. yeah often called the bazooka especially by the americans because because they've got a similar weapon what is what is the panzerfaust it's a short-range, single-shot anti-tank weapon with a high-explosive anti-tank, or heat, warhead that could be wielded and fired by a single German soldier. So, th this, when you're talking about ambush here, just one soldier can ambush a tank. Right. Uh, now, this is a big advantage for the defenders. Uh, on the other hand, the Allies have some big advantages as well. What are they? Well, they've got overwhelming superiority of both air power and artillery, which they could call on whenever required. Now, so Operation Blue Coat starts for the second 544 Yomri at 6.55 on the 30th of July. And they follow up, the, the tanks of uh, the, for the Shermans follow the 1st Herefords of 159 Brigade into the attack on the high ground west of Kalmot, while uh, the 29th Armoured Brigade Group advanced to their left. Um, what happens to the infantry? Well, they suffered heavy machine gun and mortar fire, and Major Sir John Gilmore led his squadron round to their right, 
trying to outflank and destroy the opposition. Now, Jack Edwards, he describes what happened. So this is Trooper Jack Edwards of 4 Troop B Squadron. And B Squadron is Gilmore's squadron, yeah. The squadron moved through this orchard and tanks started hitting mines. About half A Squadron got stopped, knocked out by mines. Our tank missed them all. The troop leader, Mr Dark, came to take over our tank. He'd only just climbed in when Sir John Gilmore, the squadron leader, said, I'm having this tank. So Mr Dark had to get out and Major Gilmore took over. We were squadron leader's tank for the rest of that day. It meant we didn't do any fighting, but we were zipping about all over the place. He kept jumping out to have a word with the infantry, jumping out to have a word with tank commanders. It was in the Bocage country, all these thick hedges and deep ditches. It gave me a headache because we kept dropping into these ditches and climbing out, then bouncing flat onto the field, climbing over these high banks at the bottom of all the hedges. Very hard going. To me, it was a bit strange having a major on board. I'd never had an officer on the tank before, so I didn't know what to do about it. But he said, have you such a thing as a bar of chocolate? I found him a bar and a bit later he saw somebody throwing hand grenades over a hedge as we were passing. He said, have you such a thing as a hand grenade? I gave him a couple of hand grenades, which he'd lobbed over the hedge. He was very polite. Landed gentry, you see. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful quote. Uh, the, the squadron lo- lost seven tanks uh, on the mines. Uh, 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 I'm not sure that's A squadron or B squadron, because uh, uh, I've not made that clear. The, 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 the 54 fires certainly lose a lot of tanks on mines. Now, on the left, Steel Brownie, uh, now this is uh, uh, one of our favourites, Lieutenant William Steel Brownie, who commanded four troop in A squadron. He's in the thick of the action uh, as, as, as the A squadron tanks move forward and and they they're hit by a mass of, of mortar fire aren't they and he says this several tank commanders were killed or wounded by the mortar fire in theory we should have had the hatches closed and looked through periscopes in fact these were useless and the only way to see where you were going to spot targets and to control your troop was to put your head out my corporal's operator trooper cross went back with a splinter in the head and charlie workman staggered past with a hole in his helmet would my luck hold? Even after his head wound, Workman had tried to stay on with his tank crew, but his wounds proved to be too disabling. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman of 1 Troop C Squadron said. When I was hit by a shrapnel, it was these moaning mini rockets, a Nebelwerfer. There was a bang! As commander, I was standing up. Nobody else in the tank was hit. It was just me. <laughs> First thing I knew... <laughs> was a pain in my arm and and my leg. I disregarded that. We rang up and said we'd been hit, but we continued to move. Then apparently my voice was getting weaker and weaker, and the squadron leader said, Charlie, are you okay? I said, yes, I'm fine. Then I was beginning to sort of slip, and the wireless operator said, no, he's not. You'll have to take him away. They stopped to take me out, brought up an ambulance, a half-track, that's what they mean by that. And it took me away. Brave chap, uh, boys workman. Now, uh, he'd suffered burns. Uh, he had shrapnel in his leg. And at his interview, 
Uh, it's, it, it, I remember him as if it, as if it was you now sat before me. He, uh, he, he showed me this, uh, this great bullet hole. Well, this hole, shrapnel hole, uh, in his arm just below his shoulder. He had to take most of his shirt off to show me. It was a bit disconcerting. But, uh, it, it, I mean, these wounds don't just vanish. Uh, um, now, so what's happening then? Well, despite it all, the brigade group still pushed forwards. The pressure built up and uh, then suddenly the German resistance collapsed. A squadron, accompanied by the 4th KSLI, was sent forward to capitalise on the chance to make real progress. And once more, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant William Steel Brownlee says. Aye, I am. <laughs> the crest of the German defence is broken. We were told to move and move fast. We called it baffing. No more creeping through hedges and grinding about in first gear, but doing what we've been trained to do, move. A squadron went first and I was leading four troop. It was a case of motoring flat out on the straight, for the faster you went, the harder you were to hit. Round a bend, there was a six-barrelled Nebelwerfer sitting in the road. Buchanan, that's his gunner, hit it with an HE, high explosive, without even being given a fire order, and it went up in flames. We drove over the wreckage and went on a little more cautiously. Beyond the next bend was a camouflaged vehicle, so I halted. Buchanan brewed it first time. He was a splendid gunner. And uh, Buchanan, uh, we also interviewed as well, uh, and he didn't remember, and, he said, and this is the reality of oral history, he didn't remember these specific targets, but he did remember this, this wild drive. And you're going to be Trooper John Buchanan of 4Troop, and tell us what happened. The gun was loaded with HE shells at all times and I was given carte blanche if I saw something, fire at it and then tell the commander because he couldn't watch everything. So when I saw these things, I just fired at them. If I saw something which was out of the ordinary, I just let go. If it was infantrymen, I would use machine guns. If they were going into a wood, I would spray the wood. Now, uh, next day, 31st of July, the, the pressure's still on. They've got to increase. On, on, Gary. We've had this before. On, advance. And uh, the village of St. Martin de Bessas uh, had to be taken as soon as possible. And this job was given to Major Hutchison, Pinky Hutchison, of, uh, and, and A Squadron, uh, and along with uh, 4th KSLI. Uh, and you're going to be your old favourite, Major Douglas Hutchison of A Squadron. I met Max Robinson, a delightful man who commanded the KSLI, and we made a plan of how we were going to do it, to take the village from the, the west, with tanks advancing in support of the infantry on both sides of the road. Trouble was, we discovered when we started that it was absolutely impossible going for tanks, with tiny little fields and orchards, banks everywhere, so we weren't able to support the infantry forwards the way we'd hoped to be able to do. There was a German Mark IV seen in the village. Now, this is this is just a classic little skirmish. Uh, it doesn't mean much unless you're in one of the tanks that's hit. But uh, in, in the village, there's a combination of Mark IV, a German tank. There's a, 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 what, an anti-tank gun, Panzerfaust. And, and these together knock out two of Hutchison's A squadron tanks. And uh, <laughs> But there is one lovely bit, Steel Brownlee. Uh, who's a bit of a humorist himself. Uh, he enjoyed telling a story of, of when he actually pulled into St. Martin de Bessas in his Sherman. He said this, I cautiously turned right and saw two things. One was a naked female standing in the middle of the street. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. A tailor's dummy set up by a German with a sense of humour. 
Oh, I thought Germans didn't have a sense of humour. Uh, the other was a broken track of a Mark IV and skid marks showing that the tank itself had been towed away. You often see skid marks, don't you? And often being towed away. Now, nevertheless, the village was secured. On the 2nd of August, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Fire Yeomanry continued the advance. On, pu- on, Gary! Pushing on to Bercy, which lay in the uh, Lallier Valley. Yeah, yeah with high ground rising up to the Le Perrier Ridge before the key objective, codenamed Rugby. What was that? Uh, that was the very Vassy main road. Yeah. Now, Hutchison's A Squadron, again, is ordered to make their final advance to cut the Via. I'll go for Via Vassy, but I've no idea. Um, uh, a mile sa- uh, further south... Uh, it, it's running along the next ridge after La Perrier, I think. And again, I'm going to be Lieutenant William Steele Brownie. By this time, uh, Steele Brownie seems to be at the front of everything. He just is a real press-on pilot, as they used to call it in the RAF, of course. He says this, I went very cautiously up a narrow sunken lane. In part, it was so narrow that one track was in a rut, the other halfway up the bank, so that the tank tilted to about 45 degrees. The tank behind mine stuck blocking the path of all the others. So I went on even more cautiously, short of the road. I put on a German helmet, took a German rifle that I kept on top of the turret and crawled up the last 30 yards. The road was quite empty for two miles in, in both directions, so he's crawled up the lap to the, this main Via Vassi road. I brought the tank up and backed it into a lane on the far side of the road so as to look east. When my corporal came up, he parked on the near side looking west. We waited, for the squadron was jammed again. Nothing happened for ten minutes, when a motorcyclist came fast along the road from Veer. He waved, not realising who we were. I hit him in the right leg with a German rifle, and my corporal hit him in the left leg with his pistol. Poor sod. He fell off and lay in the road. When the squadron came up, I went to him, and he tried to draw his pistol, which, which I took from him. I gave him a shot of morphia and we put him in the ditch out of harm's way, as I thought. I still have his cap and shoulder straps, which indicate that he was an Oberfeldwebel in the 116th Panzer Division. Blimey. Oberfeldwebel. Oh, thank you, Gary. Did you ever get promoted that level? Lance Corporal. Oh, but that's why you Proud of it. it, proud of it. Oh, he was. Now, the rugby objective, unlike almost every other road in the area, was a significant carriageway. Now, shortly afterwards, they saw other vehicles approaching, and this is what Trooper Terry Boyne of 4 Troop A Squadron said. A small convoy of German trucks came down and we hit them. The impact of them being hit pushed them off the road virtually. A lot of smoke and fire. The Germans that came out of the trucks came towards us and gave themselves up but one of them was very badly injured and he was laid out at the side of the hedge. We stayed there all night, but this lad that was wounded was crying for mama at intervals. It was quite harrowing. He was literally dying at your feet. That was the only word he was saying, mama. I was thinking about that somewhere there's a mother and father going about their life and there's their son, his life draining away. The volume got less and less as he just faded away. Nothing we could do for him. Nothing at all. Yes, uh, pretty awful, isn't it? Now, uh, amongst these sh- trucks that they'd shot up, there was at least a couple of German ambulances. Um, not deliberately, but that, that's just what it was. And, and they took some of the medical personnel prisoner. Uh, then, then, 
What do you think the Germans did then? Did Germans just accept that this uh, vital road's been cut? No, there's a more serious development as the Germans reacted violently to these unwelcome intruders. And once more, this is what uh, Major Douglas Pinky Hutchison <laughs> of A Squadron. So he's uh, he's uh, Thingy Bob's uh, uh, Scott Thingy Brownie. Bob's. Scott Brownie. Thingy Bob. He liked to be called Thingy Bob. Uh, Scott Brownie's uh, squadron commander, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he is. And this is what he says. We hadn't been there very long when several tanks came up on the road. My immediate assumption was it was the 23rd Hussars coming out on the road parallel with us. But it turned out to be German tanks. Panthers. Oh, not tigers. No. <laughs> we, at about 2,000 yards, we started having a shooting match with them. If you got off the road, you couldn't see them. So we had to stay on the road and felt slightly at a disadvantage with their gunpowder. I don't think they did too much damage to us. I called almost immediately for lime juice, and because we were so far forward, we got immediate priority. Really, it wasn't very long, only a matter of minutes before these typhoons arrived. They were thoroughly effective. They dispersed them, and looking through my binoculars, I thought they'd blown one into the ditch. These rockets were really quite powerful if they struck their targets. It gave us immediate relief. So lime juice is the code word for, for air, air, air power assistance. Wow. Now, uh, now uh, the, uh, <laughs> at this point, uh, John Buchanan, which is also you, uh, four true, base grudder, he, uh, he's reminded of a sort of amusing saying that was very common in, uh, in the regiment and, and uh, across half the British Army. Because uh, suddenly more aircraft appear. What does John Buchanan say, Gary? There was an old saying in France, when the German planes came over, the British and Americans head for cover. When the British planes came over, the Germans went for cover. But when the Americans were over, every bugger went for cover. We were bombed by the American planes. They hadn't been told the Virivasi road had been cut. Now, it all happens incredibly quickly. And uh, and uh, and Trooper Terry Boyne, again, 4 Troop A Squadron, he, he, he tells us what happened. Thunderbolts hit us. The American Air Force. They came swooping over the trees. You don't realise realize how big they are. They were quite frightening when these things came swinging in, firing machine guns. We must have been further advanced than they recognised. But when you think we had white stars on top of the turrets, we had an orange recognition map we could pull out. So we were all diving down the bins at the back to get these mitts out, uh, these mats out to put down. And we had recognition smoke grenades. We were slinging them all over the place. It didn't make the slightest bit of difference. They still came in. I think they hit one of the scout cars. There was a couple of casualties from that. They talk about friendly fire, but there was nothing friendly about that. Yes. Uh, now, uh, that night, uh, most of A squadrons withdrawn, uh, but they decided to leave one, uh, one troop behind. Guess whose troop? Can you guess? Well, it's going to be still Brownlee, isn't it? It is. It is. It, now they're they're lying to to set up an ambush. It's very dangerous, and he he gets a medal for this. He didn't uh, he didn't volunteer for it. I can assure you, but he gets left behind because they're not they're, they're not safe uh, tanks isolated on this road. And now uh, we're going to take a short break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. Now, two very different external forces were beginning to impact on the second five and four far yeomanry. Which one, whoever? Yes. It had been decided that despite the opportunities for the 11th Armoured Division to take the uh, then almost undefended town of Vire, they would instead respect the original boundaries between the Allies and leave the town to the American Nineteenth uh, Corps. I think that's. I mean, if you can't, these things are difficult to change. You you can't say one town's within somebody's uh, lines of advance and then move it. It's going to cause as much confusion. However, uh, Vir, Vir, as I call it, and Vire, as you call it, were were uh, both entirely legitimate as far as I could see. Uh, it was undefended, but. Anyway, so the opportunities going missing. Now, on uh, top of that... Oh, is there something else? Not, yeah. It's not just I, the... We- I said there was two. Oh, so the weather wasn't one of them. No. The 9th SS Panzer Division and the 2nd SS Panzer Corps were in the process of moving up to cover the yawning gap in the German lines northeast of Vire. Although on the way, they suffered delays from the assiduous attentions of the British and American Air Forces. So these sound like baddies. Uh, well, in that context, yes. I think the word SS is the context I'm giving it. But yes. Um, now, um, uh, it becomes apparent that the Germans are being reinforced and, uh, they start infiltrating forces start to appear around the, uh, Via Vassi Road. Uh, and so, so what does A Squadron do? What's, what's Pinky Hutchison order to do? Well, they abandoned the Via Vassi and soon the Germans had pushed them. Uh, pushed forward to threaten both the Bursi village. That's back in the Dalier Valley, yeah. And 
the British communication lines. So even behind that, oh, this is all a bit worrying. Now, what, what's uh, what is what's British High Command? Well, it's not High Command, is it? What what's the Eleventh Division Commander? And that's Major General Pip Roberts. He liked to be called Pip. Well, he was worried at being out on a limb due to the slower progress of the US First Army on the right and the Guards Armoured Division to their left. As a result, he called a stop to any further advances by 11th Armoured Division. He ordered his units to take up defendable positions within the overarching protection of the mass guns of the 8th Corps Artillery. I think this is uh, interesting because, once again, this is a a series of podcasts about uh, the tanks. But... That was very interesting for me, just to hear that massed artillery, and that's what's going to cover this line. Uh, the, the 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 importance of the British uh, sheer—it's just awe-inspiring power of their Agras uh, Army Group Royal Artilleries. That that's something that, uh, that the Germans can't cope with, uh, and that's what's going to defend this line. Uh, what does the Ninth Panzer Division do then? Well, they counterattacked for the next couple of days, during which they managed to infiltrate Bercy itself. Now, that meant for a time, the supply lines were severed for some of the 2nd, 5th and 4th fire yeomanry. Mm. A squadron tried to recapture the village, but the attached infantry only finally ejected the remaining Germans on the 5th of August. It was a really difficult period as no one seemed to know what was happening. And this is what Trooper John Thorpe of four Troop C Squadron says. We're isolated and this countryside is covered by sunken roads, narrow tracks, six feet and more below the level of the fields with hedges growing uh, on, on, up on extra banks on either side. They're excellent cover for the German, Ger- Sir Jerry, sorry, to sneak up on us. We are standing to again, very jittery. The weather is unbearably hot. The day drags on and my eyelids are as heavy as lead. We have to keep a careful watch and keep awake and alert to stave off any attack. 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 God, what would I give for a bit of shut-eye? You see, I'm so tired I can't pronounce words. That's how tired Oh, dear. Attack. Is that how landed gentry say? Attack. Attack. I'm going to attack over here. On the 6th of August, a day marked elsewhere by the capture of the key height of Mont Pinton. Oh, that's on the left. So that's a key object. Yeah, that is important. At first, all seemed relatively quiet on the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry Front around Bercy. A and C squadrons are taking up positions guarding the approaches to the village. Ooh, so it's all quiet that day. All quiet. Then, dun, dun, dun. dun, dun. At about 1400, that's two o'clock, Thank you. German artillery and mortars burst into life, marking the arrival of the 10th SS Panzer Division to take over the counter-attack. Now, soon, their tanks are rumbling towards the sea squadron positions. During the fighting, the Sherman, commanded by Sergeant Cliff Jones, was soon put out of action, as John Thorpe relates. So, as it's before, four troops, sea squadron. He says this, We move forward to support infantry when a mortar explodes on our engine hatch and the engine dies, so we have to stop where we are. Jerry is attacking with everything. One unceasing barrage, a tornado of shells and an inferno which goes on and on. All around the pitch of noise rising in intensity. The scream of shells, explosions, the echoes from the trees is like thunder. And together with the screams builds up to sound like tram cars negotiating sharp curves. Can we survive this lot? To add to the barrage is a crash of bombs, the American Air Force. Now bomb our positions. Cliff is in the turret. 
Cliff, sorry, Cliff in the turret is keeping a sharp lookout and says Hutch. Now, this is a different Hutch. This is Lieutenant Graham Hutchison. Uh, he's uh, the cousin of uh, Pinky Hutchison. Uh, he, now, he's uh, our troop. He goes on to say, Hutch, our troop leader, whose tank is some distance behind ours, has been injured and lying on the ground in the open. Cliff says we, we shall have to do something about him as soon as there is a lull. Hutch's tank is under a tall tree and HE has hit the branches, sending shrapnel down into his tank. Cliff and I go to him and attend to his injuries. Head and left leg, bad. Th uh, through the knee with bones showing. Dress the wounds with field dressings and give morphia. Try to get stretcher bearers from the dug-in dug infantry. And I'm s sent from slit trench to slit trench. After two, after two fields, I find two, both on their knees, praying and reading the Bible. They refused to leave the shelter of their trench. You wouldn't hear what I shouted at them. <laughs> colonel Scott comes up. This, this is going from bad to worse. A bit of insensitivity from the Colonel coming up. Colonel Scott comes up, standing right up out of his turret. He wants to know what in hell we're doing here. Gives orders to move and come with him straight away. We explain our tank is disabled, but he says we're to be court-martialed and takes our names, orders us to take Hutch's tank. We have a job to evict the remainder of Hutch's crew from their tank and, and eventually get them out and carry Hutch and place him under our tank to await medics to pick him up. So it's not exactly going well. Uh, do they get court-martialed? Well, Scott's acerbic threat was made because it was against standing orders to attend to wounded crews during a battle. But in the end, as their tank was disabled, the matter went no further. Yeah, it was a bit ridiculous, really. But, I mean, you've got to realise Scott's under a lot of pressure uh, and, and he's probably just, what the bloody hell are you doing? Why you? Yeah, he's just reacted. Uh, now, what's going on on the Le Perrier Ridge? Well, the German counterattack is is developing. It's becoming a very real threat. And uh, and Graham, the chap who's been badly wounded, but his cousin, Major Pinky Hutchison, uh, Douglas Hutchison, and A Squadron, they're coming under real fire. And you're going to be uh, Douglas Hutchison. Sorry, Pinky. About six o'clock in the evening, they had quite a bit of artillery support and we were getting a real concentration of fire on us. Also, they'd raked up some aircraft and they were bombing us a bit too. This was a prelude to an attack by both tanks and infantry, at the start of which we lost one or two tanks brewed up. Then we saw where these Germans had got into a sunken road and we started having a duel. I remember getting one, I think it was a Mark IV. I got him about third shot, solid shot, and then I changed to HE after that. I saw it brew up. I was having a duel. He was shooting at me and I was shooting at him. I won, fortunately. It was the only tank I can remember positively knocking out myself. We didn't lose any more tanks and we shot them up. Still Brownlee certainly got one, two there. We silenced the tank side of that attack. After that, the infantry were easier to deal with. We had quite a good shoot at infantry trying to get into where we were. They never did. Now, the crew casters in this phase are quite quite light because in a defensive uh, action, what can the tanks do that keep... That, that, that well, they, they could adopt the hull down position and, and concealed positions at, so they're awaiting the attacking prey, as it so, were. So just the sort of gun and turrets poking above, uh, yeah. Um, however, there's still, there's still a drip, drip, drip of casualties and A and C 
squadrons are, are temporarily amalgamated under our hero, uh, Major Hutchison. Well, what happens next day, 7th of August? What do the Germans do? The Germans probably just go home for a cup of tea, no? Yeah, they resumed their attacks after that cup of tea. (laughs) So the Germans had a cup of tea, then they resumed their attacks from both flanks. And again, there was some severe fighting. The Tigers had climbed the high ground to the east of La Haute Perrier, or uh, otherwise known as Hill 242. That's easier to say. It is. And opened a damaging fire on the second Fife and Fourth Fire Yeomanry. Indeed, in a matter of a few minutes, they knocked out five Shermans. And these do seem to have been actual Tigers for once, uh, as opposed to the usual uh, miscellaneous Mark IVs. Um, now, so, so how do the Allies respond to this threat from, uh, from, from Hill 242? Um, <laughs> well, the German positions are deluged. Deluged with shells as the long-range medium 5.5-inch guns came up into effective range. Hang on. Who who do we know used to have 5.5-inch guns? Oh, God only knows. South Lots as well. Do you remember that? Never heard of them. 42 podcasts we did. Never heard of them. I've forgotten all about them. Oh, no. Well, perhaps you ought to read my book at close range. (laughs) Now, however, something else also needed to be done if they were to quickly clear out the Tigers. And Lieutenant Colonel Alex Scott asked Major Sir John Gilmore to try to resolve the situation. Gilmore, he was a really determined officer and he used a combination of his tank experience and pre-war game hunting to stalk his squarry. There are uses in... (laughs) There are uses in landed gentry there. So, uh, So he says this. I... (laughs) <laughs> I had to change to a different tank because on my own, the, the wireless set had given out. So I had to go to another tank in order to get, get the use of a wireless set. Of course, there was still a chap inside the turret. There was a long enough lead to stand on the back of the tank. It was a practical thing to do. It was a question. So he basically stood there with the extended lead to the, the wireless on the back of the tent. Um, uh, it was a question of trying to make certain that you kept your own vehicle in a sort of hold-down position to reduce their vulnerability to attack. You needed to be certain that you didn't advance too much into the open. You would have to direct the gunner. He eventually, through his telescopic sight on his gun, he, he should be able to take over. Wow. Now, uh, so whose tank has he got into, or rather on the back of? Well, he, he got into the tank commanded by Sergeant Burt Shaw, and the driver was Ron Forbes, who we've come across earlier. Yeah. Uh, and he well remembered how they manoeuvred to gain the best possible position to get the Tiger. And this is what Trooper Ron Forbes says about the situation. A squadron were getting pretty badly hammered by this Tiger in the woods up on a, pr- a promontory or small hill. <laughs> he was dug in, reversed back into an emplacement. Every now and again, he was coming out, choosing his time and target, and knocking out A-squadron tanks on the slope. So John came on my tank, which was a fireflyer, and we did a wide detour around the back, along roads, crossed several open bits of ground, saw some German infantry. They were mostly running away. I think there were two other tanks behind me. We got up on this bank and Sir John chose his spot well. He knew what he was doing. He'd obviously read the map quite well. I sort of stuck my nose into this hedge and the gun was just above it, sighted on the tiger up on the hill. We got right around on the side of it. Sir John said, Engage your reverse gear and keep your foot on the clutch. 
My foot was on the clutch and it's a fairly heavy clutch. You have to press it in hard. I got a twitch in my knee. I was scared in case I let the clutch out and fell the whole thing. All I saw was a flash when Bertie, Bertie Moyer, Moyer, fired three rounds quickly, one after the other. And Andy, he's referring to Andy Mathers, must have been on his game too. He must have loaded quite fast. The shots went home. Apparently, we knocked out the Tiger. Then it was a question of getting out as quickly as possible. My foot was right down on the board. We shot back quite violently. That's all a bit uh, exciting. I, 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 you know, it, but it, the other thing is, this is a, a duel. And if you make a mistake, it, it must have been nerve-wracking, all this fighting the Bacars. Um, it, it just ambushes everywhere. Um, but actually... It's also good for this sort of covert approach. Uh, uh, but everybody's on tenterhooks, I would imagine, all the time. There must have been an enormous amount of tension. And you're going to be Trooper Jack Edwards of 4Troop, B-Squad, and he's, he comments on this, doesn't he? Anxiety was the main thing, because you were always so frightened of enemies sneaking up on you. I was forever searching through the periscope, although I hadn't got a very good view through the periscope. Forever searching in case I could see anything creeping up on us. I used to look at the tank and imagine a shell coming straight through us or something like that. So many people got badly burnt in tanks. Next to me in the turret was a large fire extinguisher, and I used to practice grabbing it so I was really quick on the draw with a fire extinguisher. I thought, if the thing goes up in flames, I'll have to try and fight my, my way out with that. To get out, I had to crawl under the gun shield, which would take a while, anxiety and the worry that in an emergency would I do the right thing and I, I can just imagine sitting in a tank working out your means of escape working out you know getting the fight make sure the fire ex- it's what we do isn't it it uh, is well we wouldn't get in the tank in the first place if we could avoid it uh, but these men uh, these men are, are different people from us I suppose uh, a lot of casualties that day uh, including uh, Colonel Alex Scott uh, I bet that put him in an even worse mood uh, he's not he's not badly wounded he comes back in a, a week or two uh, well he was able to remain in command for a while but then he goes off for a week or so and uh, yeah now uh, so what happens uh, what the, so that's the seventh what happens on the eighth fighting of resumes. August sorry the fighting resumes with the Germans confining their actions to prolonged shelling of the Le Perrier Ridge. However, Hooray! to Hooray! considerable rejoicing amongst the men, that afternoon the regiment were relieved by the Royal Scots Grey, Greys and given a short period of rest. I was just going to say that Royal Scots Greys is another one that's easy to pronounce. Just before and then you... I get it wrong. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't do that one. <laughs> Operation Bluecoat, undertaken in conjunction with the American Operation Cobra, had been an undoubted success. In what way, Gav? Well, Bluecoat played its role in fixing and wearing down German armour on the British front, and the sudden switch from the Khan area to Calmont had undoubtedly surprised the Germans. Well, yeah, because what they're doing, they force the Germans to counterattack, and, and, and that erodes much of the strength of the 9th and 10th SS Panzer Divisions, the ones we've been talking about. Because by coming forward to counterattack, they expose themselves not only to our Shermans in defensive positions, but also to uh, the 5.5-inch massed ro- uh, Royal Artillery, the Agras. Um, what about the... I think we ought to pay tribute to, to somebody else as well. Who's that? Well, the Americans, they'd made fantastic progress. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and, and to such an extent that when the Germans try that, they, they have a Mortain counteroffense. I'm not going to pretend I know anything about that. Uh, Hitler insisted on it, uh, direct against the Americans. It had to be abandoned almost immediately after it began on the 7th of August. Uh, but then, then something else happened that's even worse for the Germans. Poor old Germans. Uh, they've been bullied in some ways, I think. Uh, what else happened? At 2300, 11 pm, on the 7th of August, Operation Totalize was launched as the 1st Canadian Army had renewed their attack pressing towards Falaise. Again, it's grim fighting. Uh, the Germans never seem to give way easily, do they? Not for long anyway. Uh, but the 2nd Canadian Corps, they make good progress. They break through the German defences and they're pressing, well, six, some six miles down the line of the Cannes-Falaise road. Um, so, so how are they doing? What, what happens then? Well... As you mentioned, they're, they're making good progress down the Carnfalais Road before they, they're being stemmed by desperate German counterattacks on the 11th of August. Now, hang on, I'm getting a bit of a picture here. If the Americans are swooping this way and bending from the right, and they're th- from, from, you know, the, the Operation Cobra, that's coming in from the right, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the Canadians are coming in from the left, what they mean? What you're basically saying is that the gap's narrowing. Is it the Falaise Gap? And it's narrowing. The German army teetering on the brink of disaster. Could the German 7th Army escape the trap? Well, you know what? This is just another, another cliffhanger. There, what, what, what's going... The tension must be unbelievable for our listeners. They'll be thinking, will the German 7th Army escape? Well, if you want to find out what happens and you can't wait, then you can buy Peter Hart's book, Burning Steel. And all will be revealed. Well, not quite all. We like to keep our trousers on, don't we, Gary? (laughs) Speak for yourself, Pete. (laughs) Cheers, Gary. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support us, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblahblah
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it